the different forms of pornography that we consume, thinking about erotic desire, uh, shape, have the ability, the power to shape our erotic imagination. Today I'm speaking with Samantha Rose Hill, Assistant Director of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities, Visiting Assistant Professor of Politics at Bard College in New York, and Associate Faculty at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research in New York City, where she teaches a class called Pornography, Aesthetics, Politics, and Pleasure. Professor Hill has also taught classes on sadomasochism, economies of desire and recognition, Beyond Eros, the philosophy and politics of love, and Judith Butler, gender, sex, and death. You can check out her courses at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research and potentially enroll in one upcoming. In this conversation, Professor Hill offers some critical insights on the role of pornography and desire in a capitalist society, and together we explore the complex and dynamic world of internet porn. Before we get to the conversation, reminder to check out Ova Moon if you are a person who bleeds. This is a wonderful supplement that can help regulate your cycle, and you can use the discount code STRIPPERS AND SAGES. Hi, Samantha. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about all of the, the topics that you're exploring in your, in your work. Hi, Liam. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. So you're currently teaching a course at Brooklyn Institute for Social Research called Pornography, Aesthetics, Politics, and Pleasure. So what are some of the central questions that you are contemplating or asking in this course? So some of the central questions that we've been talking about in pornography are, you know, simply what is pornography? What does it do? Um, why has pornography been treated so inconsistently from a moral, political, and legal perspective over time? Um, what are the aesthetics of pornography? How is pornography structured? Um, what's the relationship between sexual desire and pornography? My personal interest in teaching this class um, came from a desire to better understand the relationship between erotics and pornography in the digital age and to begin to think about what technology has done to the way we experience pornography. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, one of my questions for you is like, how do we just, is there a distinction between the erotic and the pornographic? And what are some of the complexities or problems of even trying to make that distinction? Well, it's a really rich question. And I came to it reading Susan Sontag's um, essay on the pornographic mm -hmm. imagination. And I was really struck by the way in which she seemed to strip or want to strip eroticism from pornography and the way that I was thinking about eroticism. And so I think absolutely pornography can be an erotic. Um, but I'm, I'm very, I'm very um, wary of, I'm very suspicious of what technology has done to the eroticism that's possible in the experience of pornography. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I was born in 1984. Um, 86. And okay. So same, same age bracket before the, before the internet, we're in that little, that little slice right. of, of coming of age, you know, and I, 
Um, you know, I was given romance novels when I was about eight years old by my mother, which essentially became my introduction to to sex and or, or what I call airport smut, air, airline <laughs> smut. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it used to be a process, right? People would have to drive to a video store. They would have to go behind the kind of curtain. They would have to arranged to make a phone call, they would have to wait, there would be time. Um, And now the way that people consume pornography is not so much erotic in the sense that there's waiting and longing, anticipation, imagination, it seems, but that it's a drop-down menu. Mm. Um, That it's become, you know, this kind of museum catalog of different acts, um, people, actors, models, and you just go and you choose and it's on demand and it's free. It doesn't cost you anything anymore, although there are certainly costs to it. Um, And so it's changed the way that we partake of pornography. Um, I think technology has turned it into a consumer object. Mm. Whereas before it was something that you were really needing to experience and engage in and maybe sacrifice for and have this anticipation of, that's what you're saying. I think experience is absolutely the right word. And that's the framework that I'm thinking about it with. It it was an experience Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, I I remember being in middle school and sneaking off with other girls to dial 1-800-SPANK-ME in the locker room, you know, waiting for the teacher to catch us. You know, there was a bit of play to it or trying to slip behind the curtain at Blockbuster or, you know, watching a, a film, you know, the, you can, the classic 70s narrative porn films or the Japanese pink films, you know, there was a kind of artistic and aesthetic value in them. And the same with, the same with books, you know, from Lady, Chatterley, from Lady Chatterley's Lover to the works of George Bataille mm-hmm. or The Image or The Story of O. Um, you know, these things were passed around mm-hmm. um, in paper bags. And now, you know, I'm not sure anybody's reading Bataille too much, um, <laughs> but, but we have Fifty Shades of Grey, um, which, is, which is something else entirely. So it sounds like you're also saying that there's been the aesthetic quality and the literary virtue of pornography has declined over the years with the increasing digitization. I mean, is that, is that a claim that you're making? That is a claim that I'm making. There's certainly different ways to think about it, but the styles of pornography produced, at least cinematically, have changed over time. So internet pornography didn't really come into existence until fairly recently, until 1997. Um, And that saw a shift toward more what we would call hardcore, um, where there's a kind of pre-given script to, you know, these clips or scenes or scenarios um, that are set up, they often end in the same way. Um, And there's not as much emphasis on narrative and it's more about theatrics, um, angles. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So 
I guess when you were saying earlier, because I, I flagged it, you, you were saying that pornography has also in ways been de-eroticized or that you can potentially strip the erotic from the pornographic, which is something I have not thought about. I've thought about like how you can classify one versus the other and some of even the problems of making that distinction because I feel like it creates a hierarchy, right? Or And this is in some of the research I was doing for this conversation of seeing how it's like, well... It, like oh, the erotic is gear is softer. It's less offensive. It's geared towards women and the feminine, right? And then the pornographic is like the hardcore and the obscene. And it gets into that like fuzzy realm of how you distinguish and who is creating these guidelines of acceptability in some ways. And um, but then you're you're talking about it from a lens of like aesthetic value. And so where does where do aesthetics and eroticism intersect? And or, or is that how you're thinking about? what the erotic is, that it has this aesthetic quality to it? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I am thinking about it through an aesthetic lens. Um, to, to talk about eroticism, or let's even say erotic pornography, um, you know, it certainly doesn't mean softcore. It doesn't mean feminine or, or even gentle. I think, uh, you know, this, the story of O is about a woman uh, who's taken to a chateau by her lover, um, who engages in a uh, very heavy BDSM play. Um, George Bataille, uh, who's one of my favorite writers, um, I think is incredibly erotic. His short story, Madame Eduarda, um, opens with a man taking a piss in the middle of the street and, you know, making his way drunkenly to uh, a brothel uh, where he finds God uh, in a, a woman's slit, as he calls it. <laughs> Um, Where know. else would you find God? Well, you know, that's what I'm saying. So Bataille, Bataille understood certain things. Um, but no, so it's not soft. So I think there's there's other elements to what it is we're talking about when we're talking about eroticism. But I think let's just start with pornography for a second and thinking about hardcore and thinking about the kind of mainstream um, pornographic sites that people visit you know, Pornhub, YouPorn, these sites that are, um, you know, I think Pornhub is now like the number six most popular website in the world, mm -hmm. um, which is really remarkable um, in a certain way, but also entirely unsurprising and, and rather predictable. And I'm surprised it's not higher. But anyway, it's utilitarian. It doesn't have this kind of aesthetic dimension. It doesn't have this erotic quality. If you go to that kind of pornography, you're doing it for a reason. You're doing it to get off. And there's nothing wrong with getting off, but you're going to watch, I think most men last on average two minutes these days, according to, to some researchers, right? Um, you know, you're going to watch two or three minutes, maybe a little bit more, and you're going to turn it off. So the experience is just the act of masturbation and coming, which I don't think that there's anything wrong with. And that's certainly one form of sexuality and eroticism. But to leisurely take your time to pay attention to the sensual aspects of the body, of sexuality, to linger, to have focus, um, to you know read through a novel, to watch... Um, an hour and a half pornographic film uh, to allow 
that sensation of arousal to swell and grow over time, I think is, is it's the longing, mm-hmm. right? I think eroticism in the rather traditional Greek sense very much has to do with the flight, right? Eros is about giving chase. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite political thinkers, Walter, Walter Benjamin, uh, who, who was known to be quite quite a ladies' man, but according to his wife, was not very good in bed. Just a, a little bit of fun trivia, um, <laughs> you know. Said said I think very beautifully. You know, Eros always flees before the lover. Mm. Right? The lover wants to possess, to have, to hold, to claim. But Eros is the it's the chase. And so I think you know when we're talking about pornography as a medium that can facilitate erotic experience. Mm-hmm. What has happened today in the age of digital technology is that we've stripped away all of those erotic elements. There's mm. no chase. Mm. There, there's no attention. There's no slowness. There's no lingering. There's no invitation to stay a while. It's you, you know, you come grab what you want from the shelf and head toward the checkout line. And, you know, I'm interested in how we can bring a little bit more eroticism back into both practices of self-love and enjoying pornography in relationships or with others, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to this kind of brute utilitarian object um, that we kind of take and leave. Right. And the consumptive quality that you're talking about, I think that that idea of the flight versus the, uh, I mean, there's like a static quality to pornography, right? Versus that ebb and flow of the, it comes back to experience, the dynamism of Eros that we are somewhat missing. I think that's very insightful. What about um, the transparency thesis, this idea that I, there was in one of the readings, I think in your course, um, I think it was talks about that the simultaneous and full occurrent attention to and appreciation of pornographic content and the formal and or aesthetic features of that content are psychologically impossible, suggesting that like you can't appreciate or engage with the or by uh, engaging with the aesthetic necessarily then means that you're not like getting out of the experience. The pornographic is that which I found a very interesting and like complex idea. Can you, can you talk about that as a concept and how that plays into this, what we're talking about with aesthetics? Yeah. So this is, this is, um, this is one essay that was assigned in the course on, um, imagination, fantasy, and sexual desire. Um, and so the transparency thesis, um, is a kind of twofold thesis. Um, you know, he says the invited attention to the medium, right. The kind of opacity of the medium gets in the way and undermines, um, our pornographic interest, uh, which, you know, so the counterclaim there is that it requires transparency, right. Our interest requires this kind of transparency that the medium, um, not be opaque. Um, and then the second part of it is that um, there's a difference, and it comes through in the later part of the essay, is that there's a difference between imagination and fantasy. Right? So are images being appreciated for their own sake? Um, or can the image just be pornography? Right. What is it that we're looking at when we look at a pornographic image? And what is that image doing for 
us mm-hmm. in the way that we're we're thinking about it. What is that aesthetic relationship that's being constituted? Um, so yes, this author wants to draw a distinction between pornography and erotic art based upon the kind of attention that erotic art invites and sustains. And so it's very close to this um, kind of understanding of eroticism that I've been talking about. Um, you know, pornography is quick. Eroticism invites us to linger. Um, but I think the, the other side of this is the difference between imagination and fantasy, right? So what is it that you're doing when you're imagining having sex with someone, right? Versus what is it you're doing when you're fantasizing about having sex with a vampire, right? Uh, which is, you know, a, a very large, uh, I understand, section of women's literature these days. Or um, uh, giantess porn was one of the topics oh, that came up. Or foot fetishism, right? To have fantasies about certain sexual acts that may or may not be real. You can't always fulfill a fantasy, right? Vampires aren't real, but you can have a kind of erotic imagination um, and fantasize about what may or may not exist. But when you're imagining having sex with your neighbor's husband or wife or partner, um, you know, that's a possibility. And so that's the other side of attention, I think, here, is that one is possible. And so it creates a different kind of temporal sense when you're doing, when you're, when you're thinking about what it is you're thinking about. And one is not possible. So it exists on this kind of futureless horizon mm. um, that allows for it to be sustained in a way um, that the imagination doesn't always because it insists upon reality. Yeah. Going back to what you were talking about, I did want to clarify because for me, um, I'm not sure I completely grasp the idea of of like opacity versus transparency. So what are, what do you mean when we're talking about opacity in terms of the medium? So opacity um, can accentuate sexual arousal. So a very easy example of this. Um, studies have shown that men find women in lingerie more attractive than fully naked women, right? Because as the old saying goes, it leaves something to the imagination. Right. So there's something to imagine. And that activity of imagining, right? The opacity invites the imagination. You can imagine the shape, the feel, the touch, the interaction. Whereas if it's just presented to you, it leaves a little less for the imagination to play with. Got it. Got it. And so then in terms of fantasy and imagination, how does that idea of opacity connect to imagination then? Well, so imagination and fantasy, I think, have to do with two things that we were talking about. One, time. Right. The slowness, the attention, right? The way in which erotic art can invite and sustain attention in a way that pornography um, almost kind of does the opposite. Um, it's not about sustaining attention. It's about getting off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if it's completely transparent, if it's, um, you know, the kind of hardcore, you know, close-up sex that we're used to seeing from some of these, uh, you know, websites and film companies, um, it's a different kind of experience 
than, um, you know, even turning the pages of an old Hustler magazine or Playboy magazine where the clothes slowly (laughs) come off the further in you get, Right. right, over time. I think the other side of this conversation and thinking about opacity and transparency, which came up in some of the other readings we discussed, is what's real sex? Mm. Mm -hmm. What is real sex? And this is part of the feminist turn in pornography. Um, This desire to depict real sex. And I think that's a different kind of transparency. To show ordinary people having sex the way they have sex and not performing the kind of super aerobics of, you know, many porn clips. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has to do with the way, again, we imagine, right? We imagine ourselves engaging in sex with others and what it is we desire or might not desire and the way in which our desire can be open by what it is we see on the screen or on the magazine or audio file uh, that we're engaging with mm-hmm. the way digital media mediates our desire. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Can you talk more about, so the mediation of desire, because that to me, um, it's like where, okay, where does desire come from and in what ways is it being prescribed and manipulated and uh, fed by porn or the erotic or even the lack of pornography, right? I think there's something interesting in the pornography being obscene, quote unquote, and forbidden that then invokes more desire. What's the sort of project there behind mediation? How does it function in what you're, in what you're observing? In terms of desire, there are different ways to approach this. Um, so there would be the more academic approach. I could quote Lacan and say desire is always desire of the other, or we could talk about Plato's symposium or the reading I gave you uh, to just, just, just for a little sadistic pleasure, Hegel's master-slave dialectic mm-hmm. uh, from the phenomenology of spirit. Um, but desire, I think, in, in broad strokes can be understood as self-consciousness. Our desire in the sense of eros is what pushes us out into the world. It moves us, right? It's that chase we were talking about. It moves us out after. And so we have to nourish and sustain that that desire, that hunger. And when we consume art objects, when we consume pornography, when we read, um, you know, we are not just consuming an object, right? We're engaging in a kind of relationship And the more we see and the more we read and listen, uh, the more we expand our imagination. So the different forms of pornography that we consume, thinking about erotic desire, uh, shape, have the ability, the power to shape our erotic imagination. Uh, One of the things that came up in class um, (laughs) was feet, which is one of the most, if not the most popular or common fetishes uh, that people have. And there there are different theories, different psychoanalytic theories that explain the foot fetish. Um, But it was more about how, you know, a person who has never been interested in feet sexually or erotically, you know, might accidentally stumble upon a scene or a clip or something and you know, be exposed to something new. And in that exposure, expand their own desire, expand their own sexuality. 
Um, and in that way, you know, we can think about pornography not just as something that mediates pleasure, but going back to self-consciousness, mm-hmm. that pornography has the power to open us up. Mm-hmm. It has the power to radically reconfigure our subjectivity, who we are, um, by drawing us nearer to our own sexuality and drive and desire. And where, perhaps more importantly, where our own limits are and boundaries and calling us into a conversation with ourselves where we can talk about, you know, why we don't like something or why we might or what we might be afraid of. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying to me seems to be one of the most um, compelling arguments in favor of pornography in terms of how it can expand our own erotic consciousness. And I know that adult filmmaker and activist Tristan Taumarino writes that feminists can use porn as a platform to model diverse modes of sexual desire, fantasy, communication, pleasure, and orgasm, diversity that's sorely lacking in other forms of media. And, you know, like in the porn, why not give people this sexual role model where people explicitly ask for what they want and use lube and sex toys and take more than two minutes to get get aroused and achieve orgasm. And so I guess, you know, a couple of questions, I just want to hear you think about those ideas and some questions I have about it are um, like, how is there a shift? Like, are you seeing as f- feminist porn, we could potentially say is on the rise that there's a shift back towards the erotic or at least towards um, creating this more expansive, less consumptive landscape and then we'll maybe move into later just how the feminist porn movement of today like intersects with the porn wars of the 70s. But we'll, we'll get into that. After. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much there. Um, so absolutely, I think um, pornography, queer and feminist pornography has the ability to rearticulate desire. You know, from the time we're born into the world, people tell us what's desirable. Um, they tell us, you know, who's valuable, who's beautiful, who's sexy. And pornography, um, as Laura Kipnis points out, I think in, in another reading, is one of the only places, if not the only place, where you'll find a whole market for sexualizing bodies over 50 um, or bodies that are in some way considered normatively beautiful by industry standards. And so in that way, it's an incredibly powerful space to reassign value, to create value, um, where there already is value, but it's not represented in society or in mainstream pornography and not in Hollywood films or, or in other places. I think we are in a political moment where that's starting to shift. I think we're seeing a real demand for recognition um, and the portrayal of different body types. Uh, This has been going on since the early 2000s um, in various ways. Uh, But pornography remains a space where uh, different bodies, different sexual orientations and identities can exist as valuable, sexy, desirous places. But this is, as the author, you you quoted points out, this has not been easy, um, especially for trans women um, who have historically been systematically excluded and driven out of pornographic spaces or expected to perform a certain kind of sexuality that's 
exoticized and not a reflection of the sex lives of trans people um, in reality, to go back to what it means to depict real sex. Um, And so I think some of the more contemporary pornography magazines and websites are doing a lot of important political work to correct this um, and to create a space where people can both experience, enjoy, take pleasure in, and perform in the pornography industry. Mm. Getting, you spoke about its political qualities, and you you mentioned Laura Kipnis, who I just, I love that reading, and I want to read some of some of the bullet points that I took away from it, but to start off thinking about theater as, or, or thinking about pornography as a political arena. Um, where is the quote that I actually had flagged for her? Oh yeah. On the idea of pornography as a form of political theater. That's exactly what I said. So how, in what way does pornography become like this arena for political theater? And what is, what is the political function in the ways that Kipnis is talking about? Yeah, so Kipnis um, writes, this is a wonderful essay, um, and she is talking about what pornography mirrors back to us as a society. Uh, So when we consume pornography, um, we're not just uh, consuming, you know, this kind of brute sexual artifact. Um, We're consuming a lot of information. There's a lot of information packaged into any kind of pornography um, that we watch or read. Um, and so she's interested in the what pornography can teach us, right? Which is not a question we usually ask of pornography. What can I learn um, from pornography? But it has a lot to teach us about sexual stereotypes, about gender stereotypes, about class fears, I think most importantly for Laura Kipnis. Um, pornography as an English term, is relatively new. I think about 130 years old. Um, And in the kind of generally accepted histories of pornography, the first pornographic artifacts were discovered at Pompeii, uh, which actually I had the pleasure of visiting uh, before lockdown. (laughs) And so I was able to show the students some of these magnificent um, you know, murals and some of, you know, the old, these very, you know, um, they're concrete rooms, essentially. With I wish I could show you some of the pictures. Maybe you can post some for your, for your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. But, but above each door was a depiction of the sexual act being offered in each room. Mm-hmm. And those had been preserved. And there were um, phalluses, um, carved into the sides of the building, pointing the way um, to those uh, spaces. Um, And I learned that a woman uh, costs less than a glass of Falernian wine. Um, But um, no, so when these were discovered, there was a question of what to do with them. And they were appropriated to a museum space. And so historically, pornography like many other social goods, has always been available to people of a certain class. And pornography was affiliated with a certain class status. Books that cost a lot of money in comparison to what they would cost today were not easily accessible. Um, And these artifacts, which were stowed away into museum spaces, 
um, so that you had to have access. And so what Kipnis does kind of, you know, jumping over that part historically, but comes to at the end of her essay is the way in which we've reassigned class value to pornography. So we have this kind of image, she says, of the man going to buy the porn, you know, this kind of working class or going, you know, old time square, you know, kind of grubby, dirty worker, you know, this kind of real image of the proletariat going to buy pornography. And so pornography becomes dangerous, right? We have this kind of Nietzschean revaluation of morality, whereas pornography was this aesthetic object and beautiful and in galleries and cost money. Now pornography is dangerous and scary and violent and, and you know, tucked into these dark corners that you don't want your children to, to go down. And so what, what was it then that catalyzed that shift exactly from... The availability of pornography. Just that it became um, less of a coveted thing, like with the printing press, and that the images could start to circulate more? It's the, what we might call in political theory the democratization right. of pornography. <laughs> it became it became a mass it became a mass market good. Like, you know, 50 cent copies of Plato's The Republic. Um, mm-hmm. but of course the aesthetic differences, you know, you can you can buy the cheap copy. Mm-hmm. Of, of Plato, but the, there's something about the form itself, the narrative that changes in the consumption of the good as it becomes mm-hmm. more and more available. And so the, the value claims attached to pornography shifted. Mm. I think that in the, the Secret Museum by Walter Kendrick is where he talks about one of the earliest definitions of pornography coming from a medical dictionary and reading that it's a description of prostitution as a matter of public hygiene. And I'm really interested in that idea of public hygiene in terms of when we're talking about the function and then also going back to thinking about what those structures were at Pompeii. Like, were they, were they temples? Were they were, they were what we would call brothels or what, what was sort of the, um, what were those spaces and how were they revered at that time? The spaces were easily accessible. They were there for sailors. Uh, Pompeii was a port city, um, and, and they were what we would call a, a brothel, um, often near bars. Not very different, um, I think, from from today. Or you know, stepping off the train in Frankfurt and being immediately in the red light district. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the the other question. Um, about the secret museum, I think actually has a lot to do with the with the question you you kind of pointed to earlier about some of the f- feminist porn wars, mm-hmm. um, which is that pornography has always created a moral panic. Mm. And if you know we're thinking about pornography as a problem of of public hygiene, I think the legal statute that often gets evoked today is moral turpitude, um, and. <laughs> It's, it's unclear. Um, if you're familiar with the phrase, it's probably from, you know, Charlie Jean getting fired from two and a half men for, you know, violating the social mores of the community, right? Moral turpitude has to, uh, applies to somebody who's violated the social customs, right? The values Mm -hmm. of a community, Um, But for the most part, historically, people who have been charged with this kind of moral violation are sex workers, are queer people, are immigrants. um, And 
think and thinking about uh, public accessibility of pornography. It's it's funny when you were talking or when I was thinking and reading about this idea of public hygiene, I sort of interpreted it as as a positive thing, as like an acknowledgement of the need to create spaces for sexuality to be explored or experienced or or anything as that being something that was valued and like that being crossing over to pornography today is like, again, an argument for its, its positive function in society. Yeah. So that's the other side of it. So absolutely. Um, pornography, uh, for some feminist, um, pornographers um, and scholars, pornography can perform that kind of public hygiene um, function. So some of the first female pornographers in the 60s and 70s uh, became pornographers because they were sex educators and they wanted to teach women how to orgasm um, and how to orgasm during sex. Most, I think it's 80% uh, of women can't come from vaginal penetration alone. It takes women on average 20 minutes to climax. So these were sex educators who wanted to give women the materials and the workshops to teach them how to come, right? How to actually have pleasure during sex. And so they started making pornographic films. And in that sense, it was it was certainly thought to be a kind of public good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not by not by the feminists, not not by Catherine McKinnon or right. Andrea Dworkin, uh, who think all sex is rape um, with men. Sorry, all sex with men is rape, or that pornography should be absolutely illegal because it is a form of violence and leads to violence. Um, you know, this is a much more sex positive, I think we would say, approach to thinking about pornography as something that exists, has always existed, is not going anywhere. Um, and so thinking about ways to change the industry so that it's not so centered on the idea of men's pleasure. Right? And in that sense, going back to representation, um, you know, pornography can teach women and and people generally, I want to say people who aren't men, um, (laughs) that, um, you know, they get to prioritize their pleasure when they have sex as well. And can teach people who are men to prioritize non-male pleasure (laughs) and reorient. (laughs) Yes. So that goes back to, of course, the didactic and sort of expansive potential in terms of our own erotic self-consciousness. Yes. And that being very powerful. Um, then on the other hand, when we're thinking about public hygiene, I also had this thought or this question about taboo and whether you see or there are thinkers who talk about pornography as um, like the site in which taboo and da- quote unquote dangerous impulses can be safely explored in a, like without acting on it. So just in this realm of fantasy. So, and I'm thinking like pedophilia or rape and all of those things, like, is there a hygienic function to allowing people to explore that in the realm of fantasy without enacting it? And, or I could see, of course, like the Catherine McKinnon counter argument is that putting those things out into public consciousness, add fodder to those impulses and create this dangerous, um, slippery slope in which they become actualized and, and promoted in our, in our communities. 
Yes. And I think there's very serious political questions there. Um, You know, the possibility that the consumption of pornography can lead to acting out on certain fantasies or that, as you said, it might have the counter effect of, you know, allowing for a kind of outlet for fantasies that a person can't um, act upon. Um, The way that we got to this question in the class um, was through reading on the pornography of death and thinking again about what the pornographic object is um, as a kind of reiteration of a forbidden act, um, as something that you're not supposed to do, something that's taboo. Um, The oldest taboo, uh, of course, being incest, (laughs) which is... (laughs) Which always, which is, I think, endlessly funny because it's everywhere. I mean, from clueless, uh, the, the the you know, in the nineties, forgot about to that. Any <laughs> to, to to any kind of mainstream pornography website, um, you will see depictions of incest, and it's a rather popular search term. Um, but there's still laws regulating, um, you know, the kind of language that you can put on incest pornography. So it has, usually has to be a stepfather or stepbrother and so on. Um, so, you know, what is the pornographic object? Is it a depiction of a forbidden act? Okay, well, then what's it doing? Right. So if we're depicting these things which are taboo that are not socially acceptable, um, and one of the authors that we read um, took the example of rape and rape porn um, and argued that the act, act of rape is something different from watching a fantasy of rape or looking at a photograph of rape. Um, the production of the image um, does not um, in itself necessarily, or have to at all, involve a coercive sexual act. Um, it can, but it doesn't. Um, I think one of the most mainstream examples of this that immediately comes to mind is the scene from Last Tango in Paris, um, which I, I don't know if you've seen, uh, but the actor has anal sex with the actress. And years later, she said she didn't want to do that on camera and that it it had long-term kind of psychological effects for her as a woman. Um, So there's there's been a kind of broader public conversation about that. But there we have um, a depiction of an act that may or may not be coercive in reality. Um, It's an act. It's acting of an act. And so there's different ways to answer this question, right? Um, Does it elicit sexual arousal? Is the purpose of portraying a coercive sexual act or a taboo-busting sexual act sexual arousal? Um, And, you know, are you willing to make a distinction between a depiction of a pornographic act and the act in itself? Um, And I think that's a difficult question. I think my um, instinct is to say, well, you know, there is a difference between watching a fantasy, something that you know you can't fulfill and would never fulfill, to explore the kind of sexual arousal that can come from it, um, and the jump to action. But I also don't want to foreclose the possibility that, um, you know, there 
certainly been a lot of conversation about the fact that if you only consume rape porn or very violent porn, that it can lead to added misogynistic attitudes towards women or to, to acts of violence. Um, I think we have to be willing to hold open the possibility for both in our imagination. Um, and that's, that's hard to do. Totally. I mean, there's also like, what are the latent impulses or if you get Freudian or psychoanalytic about it behind the desires? And I think repression leads to more danger often, right? So at least if there's a conscious acknowledgement of a desire and an exploration that's within the realm of self-inquiry, you know, then there's there's that positive potential, or at least it complicates this idea that it necessarily leads to harm. And then you have like Catherine McKinnon, who I know she wrote that piece, um, basically saying that the blaming pornography for the Serbian rapes of Muslim and Croatian women in Bosnia in the 90s, and and that uh, I think it was Kipnis's refute, or no, it was Linda Williams who wrote in response to that, that the, the problem there or a problem with making that conflation and making it in such a without any room for nuance is that then the implication is, well, then pornography becomes the villain and the thing that we should fight instead of rapists. Right. And or, or instead of guns and gun control. Right. It's like blaming the art and war culture. Yeah. Right. And war culture and all of that. And goes back also to Kipnis's thinking about this, the political theater and showing us porn, like being the culture revealing itself to itself, right? That those things, those, um, what's featured in pornography was not invented. Like porn did not invent rape. It did not invent violence, right? It's like, it's showing, it's recycling what's happening in our culture. So I think it does get really nuanced in terms of of what can be allowed and what can, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on then censorship if we're thinking about the dangers of putting certain, uh, certain ideas into public consciousness in this, in this way? Um, I, that is a very good question. Um, and I can't say that it's one I have entirely thought through. It is something that I go back and forth on um, in my own thinking, because generally speaking, I'm not a fan of censorship. Um, I believe in an open marketplace of ideas, to put it into that lovely language. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't really believe in moral policing. Mm -hmm. I think um, that kind of moralizing can have a really a damaging effect on culture and society and politics and lead to um, kinds of ide ideology uh, ideologies uh, that are, are restrictive and lead to repression. Um, but at the same time, I'm not, I'm not willing to say everything goes, right. um, you know, so it becomes that kind of conversation about, you know, what, what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. And I think that, you know, there's some kind of community consensus about that. Um, it's often a play. I mean, if we take the example that I just gave about incest pornography, I mean, so here we have the role playing of incest pornography, but because the language describes it as something that is legally acceptable, it's not the thing that it says it is, but we know it is. And so there's this kind of willful act of forgetting and repression that facilitates the depiction of these more violent forms of sexuality that, that people are more likely to protest. And so what would Dworkin, Andrea Dworkin, who called 
uh, pornography, like the weapon of patriarchy and leading to sexual fascism, how would she respond to or react to Tom Marino's sex positive feminist porn, for example? Like, because. It- oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, not well. Okay. Um, I- <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I have a horrible sense of humor. Um, I love it. You, you know, <laughs> I think there's, there would probably, you know, the, 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 the easiest response that immediately comes to mind would be to cast some, you know, kind of doubt on what is actually sexually liberating um, versus, you know, what we want to believe is sexually liberating. And that's a debate that has evolved over time. Uh, when you were talking about this before, I was thinking about Herbert Marcuse's book, Eros and Civilization, mm-hmm. where he mm-hmm. talks about, um, you know, we actually kind of need a little repression. Oh, right? You know, that is that absolute, you know, you, you're thinking th- about it through a dialectical framework. If we move toward absolute sexual liberation, Mm -hmm. then, you know, it's swing that in itself becomes a form of repression because it can take on its own character and quality of, of the kind of ideological impulse, which shuts down then the openness of possibility, because you have an idea that it's supposed to be this way, that sexuality should be expressed this way, that arrows should be expressed this way. And his whole argument or the kind of underpinning argument in that book is that, you know, we have to let go of these utilitarian ends, right? The idea that we're laboring towards something, working towards something, having sex in order to get to an orgasm or sleep with someone or have some, you know, kind of end in mind. Mm -hmm. Because as long as there's that end in mind, you're foreclosing a part of the imagination and not remaining open to that reconstruction of subjectivity that can happen when you introduce spontaneity um, and and this idea of experience that we've been talking about. But I don't think Dworkin would be willing to meet on that ground Mm -hmm. at all. She has a very, um, what I understand to be ideological motivated understanding of patriarchy that's very exclusive of men. Right. I mean, I think there's the conversation of porn at all as something that exists as in a realm in which you can watch other people have sex and then content the content of that porn and to me those seem like really big distinctions um thinking about what you were just saying about repression i mean to me a sexually liberated society is one that sort of does not fall into these normative tropes on what sex should look like and that it's repression that leads to this idea of what sex should be and this very narrow understanding of it. So how how can you expand on what role you see repression playing in terms of Yeah, so I think there's two different two different understandings of repression here. Okay. So one is the kind of Freudian understanding of repression. As we pass through the psychosexual stages of libidinal development, we develop sexual fetishes. So the first phase is the oral phase where our mother weans us uh, from the breast and if it's done too harshly or too gently, it can lead to different kinds of oral fixation um, and so on through the anal phase and the phallic phase. Um, and so for Freud, the kind of er act 
the repression that occurs, again, uh, arises from the Oedipal complex, um, which is the desire to sleep with the opposite sex parent. And so what Freud says is that that repression of that desire doesn't go away. We never actually stop wanting to sleep with our parents, but that desire gets transformed into a different kind of desire. Uh, What he understands to be a kind of repaired desire that moves us toward a kind of healthy sexual relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. I'm not talking about the Freudian kind of repression. I love Freud. I think this is fascinating. Um, I also think it's a little dated. And so is yeah. Marcuse yeah. um, in certain ways. And Marcuse is a Freud, Freud, what we would call Freudo-Marxist. Right. He's moving from Freud and, and Marx and Marx's theory of alienation from the economic and philosophic manuscripts and some and that work. And so I think the other way to think about repression and, and the way that I meant it is in terms, you know, I think Bataille is really who I would go to, you know, is our boundaries. So why do we desire what we desire? How does our desire change over time? How do our tastes change over time? Um, You know, what we like, what we don't like, but our subjectivity, who it is we are, our taste, our preferences are always changing. They're always coming into being like our sexuality and they're being constituted. So we're always you know, we have boundaries and barriers and lines. I like this. I don't like that. And in the sexual experience, there's a possibility for the dissolution and reconstitution of the subject. But at that line of transgression, at that line of repression, I don't know if I want that. That's the site of arousal, right? That's the site where we have the possibility to reconfigure our sexuality. And a lot of the time, we keep those boundaries closed, right? I think it takes a certain kind of sexual encounter or experience to meet another or others where you feel like you can enter into a space to be open, mm-hmm. right? To, to meet and to let that bit of repression go you know, and it's that, you know, bringing it to the surface and letting it go. And again, I think that's eroticism, mm-hmm. right? That's the, you know, the eroticism. Requ- yeah, it, it, yeah, it requires transgression. It requires the, you know, the sneaking behind the curtain. Mm, so it's like, if you don't have the repression, then you can't have transgression. And transgression is this foundational element of arousal and the erotic. Yes. So I think maybe the distinction for me would be where do those boundaries come from, right? Self-imposed and exploring and always um, re redefining those boundaries, but always having this idea of, that that seems useful when we're thinking about transgression in terms of arousal, um, less so in terms of societally imposed or that there's this, you know, fine line there, I think, of where the role, you know, when boundaries become really dangerous because it's actually connected to much more in terms of social control and denying like this, our own erotic spirits. Absolutely. Yes, that's very well. That's very well said. Um, And I think that's what, um, you know, I teach this other class on sadomasochism on the dialectics of power. And one of the things that we talk about in that class is how how do we create those spaces? Um, 
you know, pornography is a form and we can use it to create space. And there are certain kinds of sexual play that we can consciously engage in and use to, you know, try and open up these spaces Mm. uh, for self-discovery. I think I saw something that you wrote on, I don't remember where I saw this, but maybe on the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research's website where you were talking or in this interview that you did where you were talking about how Facebook censored that class on sadomasochism. (laughs) And you wrote, I love what you said. You said that in some ways, this censorship is this incredibly ironic and reflective of the ways in which certain kinds of contemporary political expression, for example, the desire for a master or a guardian to safely curate our real from fake news for us, very relevant right now, hands extraordinary (laughs) power right back to those places in which it's most concentrated, that power. And so it also perfectly highlights the limitations of bureaucratic language and how unreconstructed enlightenment thinking undermines the possibilities of desire. So I have lots of questions. <laughs> so first I, wanna, I just want to flag like what, what, what you mean by unreconstructed enlightenment thinking. And then can you elaborate to what you were saying earlier about like how sadomasochism might give us both a lens through which to consider our contemporary politics and how explorations of sadomasochism in particular and the erotic in general in these interpersonal realms can help us think about and challenge political concentrations of power. Yes. Um, So, you know, I'll just say first, you know, I think bureaucratic and legal language is one of the biggest problems facing sexuality today. Um, the desire to use bureaucratic or legal, legal language to describe our sexual experiences, our most intimate experiences about our bodies, our feelings, you know, that, you know, through these, through these terms, which don't allow for the expression of particularity, but have a kind of utilitarian force and claim, um, and are instrumental. Um, and I think this makes it in increasingly difficult to share one's sexual experiences in an open way with others to talk more freely about sex and eroticism and desire because other people always want to tell us what our experiences are. They don't want to listen to them or, you know, they want to name them. They want to put them in a kind of place, which is what Facebook did to my class. It flagged it as pornography. Um, (laughs) I should have just sent them Hegel. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Hegel on Zuckerman's desk, right next to his (laughs) briefings. I mean, it's also just to briefly interrupt it. It seems like in doing that with what you're saying, it then, it then actually creates the necessity for pornography because of the censorship in our everyday lives to even be able to engage in these explorations or conversations. Yeah, I mean, I, if we if we want to follow Bataille and some of the other thinkers that we've been talking about, you know, one of the central questions is how we strip utilitarian ends or aims away from our experiences and allow our experiences to be experiences that hold meaning and possibility. And Can we do that in capitalism? <laughs> well, so that's where I was going, right? So how do we create? How do we create these spaces that don't become, you know, commodities mm-hmm. um, that have this kind of function? Um, you know, and this is precisely what Facebook as a platform does. Not that I'm, you know, I use them. I'm not innocent here. By any, by any means, you know, but they're marketing ourselves back to us and making an incredible profit 
from it. Um, the bit about the unreconstructed enlightenment thinking has to do in a certain way with how our thoughts become commodities. Our desire is transformed into a commodity. The algorithms that track what we click, our preferences, and then market it back to us um, is a way of reducing human beings to consumers. And this has directly correlated to our politics. I'm from Michigan. um, And in 2010, Rick Schneider uh, ran for governor. um, And he ran on a 10-point plan to sell government goods to consumers, right? So we we have this language of businessmen. This is not a new phenomenon at all. Uh, But we have this language of businessmen, which has completely overtaken our political landscape. Yeah, so sadomas- the history of sadomasochism is fascinating. So sadomasochism was coined as a term by Kraft Ebbing and then kind of crystallized by Sigmund Freud um, as a dialectical uh, movement of desire so that the sadist needs the masochist and the masochist needs the sadist. Um, but these terms emerge from... Uh, masochism from Leopold Van Sacker Massoc and his text Venus and Furs. And then, of course, the work of the Marquis de Sade on Juliette and Justine um, and philosophy in the Baudois. And so one of the things that Deleuze and Guattari, for example, do more contemporary political thinkers is they take apart the terms so that we can think about sadism as something different from masochism. And one of the, I think, brilliant points that they make is that a true sadist would never be satisfied by a masochist, right? And But at the same time, a masochist requires a top or a dominant or somebody to fulfill their desire. So this is where we start to get into the politics of it, I think, um, and thinking about what masochism is and how, when we're talking about sadomasochism, we're talking about this kind of masochistic play, which requires a sadist um, or a top or dom, and that you have a fantasy, you tell the other what your fantasy is, you script it, um, and you sign a contract, um, you have a safe word, and, and then in order to engage in the play, you have to forget. You have to forget that you've enlisted somebody else to fulfill your fantasy. Um, and so, you know, I think that that framework, that desire for pain, suffering, punishment that we see in the masochistic fantasy has often been held up as a metaphor for contemporary liberalism and neoliberalism, where the citizens are subjects who are constantly being punished by the state, which they continuously enlist uh, to, to, to support them. And I think, I think, you know, one of the one of the horrifying things, at least to me, about Donald Trump is then that he's he's kind of a real sadist, not in the sadomasochistic sense, but he it's it's completely to go back to the line about the Enlightenment. This is Adorno and Horkheimer's argument in their chapter on um, Dassault and the dialectic of Enlightenment is that it's all about it's it's not about it's not even about um, pleasure. It's not about sensual materiality. 
Uh, there's no aesthetics. It is brute calculation. It is just about what's next, what's next, what's next. And it's about power after power just because. And so it's this kind of extreme sadistic impulse that doesn't have any other point. There's no other kind of redeeming quality of it in that sense. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. And you articulated that really well in terms of that feeding. I mean, that's exactly what we're, we continue to witness, the giving away of power and then forgetting that we've done that and then being <laughs> manipulated and violated by that that the the concentration of that power. So, I mean, when we're thinking about desire in political life and eros as a mode of political ontology and resistance, um, I, like what I'm curious, just to close up in, in this conversation, the concept of eros as this mode of political ontology and resistance and pornography, again, to as this having this function of transgression and at its as its main project, I think, like Kipnis talks about pornography existing to pester and thwart the dominant. And earlier you were talking about, okay, how did we, how did it even become this lower class thing where it became associated with like immigrants and queer people? And, you know, historically we see how sex is used repeatedly to vilify and to other and how that othering then plays into concentrations of power. So I'd love just to close with you thinking about um, or talking a little bit about then why desire and the erotic are so important as modes of political resistance. And I'll just want to presence that you have a lot of your work is actually on Hannah Arendt, who wrote The Origins of Totalitarianism. And so I'm curious how your work there intersects with your work on the erotic when we're thinking about power and capitalism and resistance? Just like a small question for you to end on. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's a small one. Um, well, let, I'll actually start with the Hannah Arendt part of yeah. it. Um, you know, Arendt uh, talks about love in a variety of different fashions um, and is rather disdainful of kind of political solidarity grounded in love the way we might read it in James Baldwin. Um, and she is very uh, critical of romantic love. She says love is um, not only anti-political, but perhaps the most, well, what does she say? I'm going to go back. She says love is not only apolitical, love is the most anti-political of all human forces. And But if we look at her journals, um, she writes a little bit about love and marriage. And in the letters with her second husband, I think one of the really interesting things that comes out is the way that they, um, the way that they organized their relationship. It was open. Uh, monogamy was never a part of their marriage contract. Um, he was a bit of a Lothario. Um, she uh, reunited with her um a lover and um, professor Martin Heidegger um, after the war, which is his own site of controversy. Um, but she understood that love, a love relationship can be a ground for freedom to a space where one can go to be at home in the world, a kind of four walls uh, to retreat from the public light, to engage in thinking, um, and to be nourished uh, by another. And I think that relates, 
I mean, it relates to our conversation about Eros. And this is not something that I've written about. Perhaps I'll write about Aaron and love and marriage someday. Um, but Eros is a way of being, embracing that spirit, that openness, that desire. Um, it allows us to move away from ideological impulses, from utilitarian frameworks, from the fixed perceptions we might have in our imagination about how things are, how they have to be. Um, and in that sense, it's democratic with a small d. Um, it allows us to be open to the other in a way that requires self-reflection and embracing the sense of possibility that exists in the human condition. Things can always be other than they are. And every time we do one thing, we're not doing a million other things. But those possibilities don't go anywhere. And as much as we might want to predict the future and predict the outcomes of our actions and to know ourselves in a way that doesn't require this kind of self-reflection, because it's scary and uncomfortable, um, you know, we 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 have to do it and we can't escape those things. Um, you know, and sex is really, you know, a perfect example of that. Sex, our definition of sex is always changing. Um, and change and possibility um, are a part of the human condition. So I think of Eros as a way of being in the world. Um, I hope we can move back toward a uh, and erotics of pornography mm. um, in the way that we make and consume sex objects. <laughs> um, and yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, and that was my sort of closing thought as you were speaking is then again, what role does pornography have in helping to usher us into those erotic states? And I think you've provided a really rich um, insight and discourse on, on how to think about those possibilities. So thank you so much. This has been such a rich conversation. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Leanne. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. Um, and thank you so much for doing the reading. <laughs> yes, star student. <laughs> I always want to just be back in a seminar. It's my secret. That's really why I have a podcast now. <laughs> well, I feel like I'd love to follow up with you down the line and talk about Bataille and other things. So I hope this can be the first of future conversations and yeah, thank you for your yes, time. Yes, absolutely. And keep doing the amazing work that you're doing. Appreciate that. So it's a great, it's a great podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. If this episode turned you on, consider dropping a five in the ratings, subscribing to the show, and sending it to a friend. You can help us build our audience this way, and we would be so grateful. Special thank you to Liliana Estes for editing this episode. Thank you, Casey Odesser and Sasha Carney, for their rigorous research and preparation for these conversations, and to Ben Euphrat for his continued guidance on this show. Stay sexy, folks. <laughs>